Well, I invite you to open your uh, Bibles with me this morning to 1 Peter chapter 1. And we'll be looking at verses 10 through 12 on the gospel of Christ in prophecy. 1 Peter chapter 1. Peter has been writing to these believers scattered throughout modern day Turkey and telling them about God's marvelous and great mercy in regenerating their hearts and giving them a living hope of a heavenly inheritance which can be a great source of joy in the midst of their trials. And this hope comes through faith in Jesus Christ. And now starting in verse 10 down through verse 12, Peter is now going to remind them that this hope, this gospel, this faith is something that is tied back to the Old Testament and the ministry of the prophets of old. So I'll begin reading in 1 Peter chapter 1 starting in verse 10. And as I read the inspired Word of God, please uh, listen and hear the Word with reverence and faith. Verse 10. As to this salvation, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful searches and inquiries, seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as He predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you in these things, which now have been announced to you through those who preach the Gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Things into which angels long to look. And may God bless the reading of His Word. Well, starting in verse 10, Peter wants them to know that this message, the gospel that they have heard and have believed in, was not something new. It was not something invented, but actually it had its roots all the way back in the Old Testament Scriptures and the ministry of the prophets of old. And then if you look at verse 10 and 11, you'll find first off that Peter references the message of these Old Testament prophets. And all of this message that they that the Old Testament prophets delivered and gave and prophesied was no doubt regarding the coming of the new covenant which Christ would bring and inaugurate in his death, burial and resurrection. But he begins by saying in verse 10 again, as to this salvation, the salvation that Peter had been telling them about, this wonderful hope of salvation which implies forgiveness of their sins and the hope of glory to come, as to this salvation, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful searches and inquiries. So he's talking about this grace of salvation that the Old Testament prophets knew what would come to them when Jesus Christ the Messiah showed up. Some of the prophets that I think are in Peter's mind here that are prophesying of the grace that would come to them would be Jeremiah, 
who prophesied in chapter 31, verse 33 and 34 of the new covenant where God would put my law within them and write it on your hearts. And then later on, he said that you won't need to teach each man his neighbor or each man his brother saying, know the Lord, for they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest of them, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity, their sin I will remember no more. So Peter is reflecting upon the ministry of one Old Testament prophet, for example, Jeremiah, of this incredible grace that the new covenant would bring to believers. Writing the law in their hearts, forgiving their sin, everyone in the covenant would know the Lord. And he's probably also thinking of Ezekiel's ministry. Chapter 36, verse 26 and 27 Ezekiel prophesied that when the Messiah comes and the new covenant comes, that he would write, he would give them a new heart, that he would put a new spirit within them. He would remove the heart of stone and give them a heart of flesh, that he would put his spirit within them, which occurred on the day of Pentecost, and cause them to walk in God's statutes. So that's another part of the ministry that's probably in Peter's mind of the new covenant that the Messiah would bring. The Old Testament prophets knew this and they prophesied of it. Peter may also have in mind Isaiah 65 where Isaiah prophesies of when the Messiah comes there will be a new heavens and a new earth where there's no more crying, no weeping, no death, no curse. And Isaiah prophesied of that. And Daniel probably was in Peter's mind as well when he prophesied that many who sleep in the ground, in the dust of the ground, will awake and these to everlasting life, but others to disgrace and everlasting contempt. And the righteous will shine like stars forever and ever. So even there, a future understanding of the glorification and resurrection of the saints. So Peter is reminding his readers that this gospel, this living hope of the resurrection and glory to come, this salvation, we didn't invent it. You find it all the way back in the Old Testament prophets. And notice in verse 10, they prophesied of the grace that would come to you. Grace in contrast to the legalism of the Jews the merit-based religion of the pagans. This is a gospel of grace. It is a gift of God that you cannot earn. That you can do nothing to merit it. All other religions mingle some form of faith and works together to earn your salvation. This is a message, a gospel of grace. It's unmerited. You cannot do anything to earn it. It doesn't depend on your faith plus your works or your obedience to meet some standard that you have to earn and rise to in order to get saved. No, this is a gospel of grace. It is a free gift. God says in His Word that if we break His law in one point, you become guilty of it all. And all men have broken God's law in many points. 
How do we begin to think that I can do anything to merit salvation when I have become a lawbreaker many, many, many times? And yet it's the insanity of sin to think that me as a sinner can do something to merit God's salvation and forgiveness. It is impossible. It's buying your ticket on the Titanic. It will not float. What Peter is emphasizing is that this salvation is a salvation of the grace of God. Therefore, we must abandon all self-righteousness. All thinking that I'm going to get to heaven because God is going to weigh my good deeds and my bad deeds. And my good deeds, I believe, will outnumber my bad deeds. That's insanity. Abandon all idea or concept of self-righteousness. It will be like a millstone tied around your neck. Because our sin is great in the eyes of God. And there's nothing that we can do to offset it. There's nothing that we can do to diminish it. Salvation is a gift. It is by God's grace. Received by faith alone in the finished work of Jesus Christ. Then we do good works. Not to earn our salvation. For we have already been given our salvation. But we do good works out of gratitude for the gift that we have been given. Habakkuk chapter 2 verse 4, an Old Testament prophet said the righteous will live by his faith. So it is a grace gift given by the Lord to every sinner who believes in Jesus Christ and trusts Him alone for salvation. It is by grace. And notice that he says in verse 10, this grace that would come to you And I think, as do the majority of commentators and modern scholarship, that Peter is primarily writing to Gentile believers, with some Jews among them as well, but mainly Gentile readers. And when he says that this grace has come to you, that was that's part of the mystery of Jesus Christ, the mystery of the gospel. That God can make a covenant with Israel. A covenant that eventually the new covenant would, would come to the nation of Israel. But that unbelieving branches would be pruned away from that tree. And believing Gentiles would be grafted into that tree. So that a Gentile can receive all of the blessings of Abraham without becoming a Jew. That was the amazing thing about it. And the Old Testament prophets had glimpses of that and hints of that glory. Abraham was told that he would be the father of a multitude of nations and all the families of the earth would be blessed in him. And that was fulfilled in Christ. Israel was to be the light to the nations so that, as God says in Isaiah 49, my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. That would include Gentiles. Ezekiel in chapter 47 said when God divides up the future land, the aliens, the Gentiles, will be allotted an inheritance with the tribes of Israel. Zechariah chapter 2 said and prophesied that many nations would join themselves to the Lord and become my people. They would be grafted into the people of God. And Amos would say in chapter 9 and prophesy that when God raises up the fallen booth of David, 
then it will possess all the nations who are called by my name. Surely they understood a glimpse of the glory of the mystery of Jesus Christ, that the Messiah would come not just to save Jewish believers, but Gentile believers as well, that the dividing wall is broken down in Christ, so that both become one new man in the new covenant. So when Peter is writing of this grace that would come to you, including even the Gentiles, these are glorious truths indeed. So what we see first is the message of the prophets. Of the grace of this salvation that they preached and proclaimed throughout their ministries in the Old Testament. But secondly, we also see about the message of the prophets, not only that it's a message of grace and salvation, but the source of that salvation is in the sufferings and glories of Christ. They understood that to a degree in verse 11. He says, seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as they predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. So that these Old Testament prophets also was given by the Spirit of Christ revelation about the coming salvation, the sufferings of Christ, and the glories of Christ. Now Peter probably had in mind here Isaiah chapter 53. One of the greatest expressions of the coming suffering servant of the Lord Where it says in verse 5, He was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon Him. And by His scourging we are healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us have turned to His own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on Him. This is glorious cross-based preaching prophecy. All about the coming of Christ dying on the cross for our sins. And they also spoke of the glorious resurrection and reign of the Messiah. In Psalm 16 verse 10, David prophesied, speaking of himself to a degree, but also encompassing the coming Messiah. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, nor will you allow your Holy One to undergo decay. And the son of David received that as a prophetic fulfillment in his resurrection. Psalm 110. The Lord Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. The Lord will stretch forth your strong scepter from Zion saying, rule in the midst of your enemies. This is a messianic prophecy. Not only of the cross, but also of his resurrection and of his glorious reign to follow. The prophets had that understanding to a degree. The source of these prophecies was none other than the Spirit of Christ. Verse 11 says they prophesied wanting to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating. So as the Holy Spirit indwelling these Old Testament prophets, giving them this revelation, And he's rightly called the Spirit of Christ even in the Old Testament because his ministry was primarily to give revelation concerning the coming of Christ. 
the prophecies about the sufferings and the glories of Christ. So they knew this. And Peter wants his readers in the first century to understand that all this truth finds its roots growing all the way back into the Old Testament. But more than that, he he indicates here in verse 10 and following just the incredible searching and investigation that the prophets made of these prophecies that they were given, but they didn't fully comprehend all of it. Notice in verse 10 that the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful searches and inquiries. In other words, they wanted to understand more of what the Spirit of God had given them. They wanted to know, for example, answers to questions like who and when. This grace of salvation that they were given, these these tidbits of prophetic prophecies of the coming of Christ, no one prophet got it all. They all were given in a sign like a piece of a crossword puzzle or something. And they would study the prophecies of the other prophets. And they would study their own prophecy. And they would try to understand and dig deeper and to comprehend it. Because much of it was a mystery to them. They wanted to, to understand in a greater degree the glory of the one they were writing about. In verse 11 specifically... They were seeking to know what person or time. If you have the NIV here this morning, it changes it a little bit and puts the emphasis primarily on the time of the coming of the Messiah. The New American Standard emphasizes their curiosity. They're wanting to know both the person and the time. And I think that's a better understanding of this verse. They wanted to know who it was. I mean... They would hear rumors maybe about a prophet who was arising and they would wonder maybe that's the Messiah. Maybe it's happening now to a degree. Of course, they'll eventually realize it's not for their day. But they're very interested in knowing what person or time they're writing about. This is certainly human nature to want to know these uh, answers. The disciples were no different. Remember in the upper room discourse, they asked the Lord, when will the destruction of the temple happen? And what will be the sign of your coming in the end of the age? They, were, they wanted to know too. And even after the Lord was raised from the dead and He was ascending to the Father, they asked the Lord, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom of Israel? They're, they're, they want to know. So like the prophets of old they don't understand everything. They, they have a lot of questions about timing of events. And of course, this has happened throughout our day as well. The Lord saved me in uh, 1972 when I was a sophomore in college. And after a guy took me to a bookstore and he said, buy that Bible. And it was a New American Standard and I've never gotten away from it since. But the next book that I bought and I read was Hal Lindsey's Late Great Planet Earth. And uh, that was very, very popular uh, in my Christian circles. And I read that book. 
And Hal Lindsey in that book implies that the rapture is going to happen sometime in the 1980s because of the time that Israel was reconstituted as a nation in 1948 and they had one generation length. And so Christ is going to come back sometime in the 80s. Oops, he missed it. And then there's another guy that wrote a book entitled 88 Reasons Why the Rapture Will Be in 1988. And he was wrong 88 times in his, uh, his prophecy. Harold Camping thought that Christ would come back in 1994. When that didn't happen, he thought, well, maybe 2011. Jack Van Ampey thought 2012. Everybody wants to know the timing. And the best we know is don't worry about it. Just live for Christ today. It's going to happen when it's going to happen. Uh, we don't know. And people that try to predict it, I've seen so many people miss it that I just don't put any, any stock in it. We just need to be ready today. We need to be watching today whenever it happens. Uh, interesting, in the Old Testament, the only real time indicator of the coming of the Messiah there's only one of them, and it was found in Daniel chapter 9, the prophecy of the 70 weeks of Daniel. Depending upon how you interpret that, the proper interpretation puts the coming of the Messiah exactly in the time of the earthly ministry of our Lord. That was the only time indicator that they had. And that's why there was such a great anticipation of the coming of the Messiah during those days because many of them had had linked it to the fulfillment of Daniel's prophecy of those 70 prophetic weeks. But again, I think what we learn from this part of this passage of just how wonderful it is to investigate and to inquire concerning the salvation and the grace that God has given to us. The coming of Christ, the glory that will be ours when He does come back, whenever that is. The grace of God that has saved us now. These are, these are biblical themes that are worthy of our investigation and study. These are glorious things that we will reap and enjoy and praise God through all eternity. And the Old Testament prophets who, who had some of that truth prophesied of it. Certainly the apostles had received greater revelations, but they wanted to know. And I think in, in their interest, certainly they become a godly example for us. Don't ever think that you know your salvation well enough. We haven't even scratched the surface. We will never plumb the depths of the grace of God, the salvation that... Christ won for us on the cross. We will never begin to fully understand the, the glory of that until we're in His presence. But oh, how we long to understand it more. To worship the Lord now because of all that He's done. Knowing that our understanding will grow in leaps and bounds when we're in heaven forever and ever. Whoever seeks a deeper understanding of God's saving grace will be enriched as one who finds hidden treasure. It is worthy of searching the Word of God to better understand these great truths. In verse 12, they, they did realize that it was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you in these things which now have been announced to you through those who preach the Gospel to you by the Holy Spirit. 
So they realized that the Messiah was not going to come in their day. It's going to come at a later time. And they were given that understanding. Christ echoes this as well in Matthew 13, verse 16 and 17. When He's speaking to His own disciples, and Jesus said to them, Blessed are your eyes because they see, and your ears because they hear. For truly I say to you that many prophets and righteous men desired to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. So that they were blessed because they saw the fulfillment of those prophecies which the Old Testament prophets did not get to see or hear. So from the prophecy of the Old Testament prophets, we now go to the proclamation by the New Testament preachers in verse 12. Peter says that his um, readers have heard these things. They've been announced to you through those who preach the Gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Now Peter doesn't say who they were that evangelized those areas in modern day Turkey. Could have been the Apostle Paul. Could have been Peter himself. Could have been some of the others. We don't know. But missionaries brought the Gospel to them They tied it back to its roots in the Old Testament with additional revelation that they received in the New Testament era. They preached the Gospel to them and they were saved. So we find that the Lord had raised up by His Spirit people to go and proclaim the Gospel to people who hadn't heard it. So the work of missions and evangelism is still an important work. They preached the Gospel to them by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. So it's interesting, the Holy Spirit gave the Old Testament prophets their revelation, and the Holy Spirit also empowers the New Testament preachers to proclaim it. It's all a work of the Spirit of God. The Spirit of God gives both revelation and illumination. And then we see that not only do the Old Testament prophets back in their day long to understand and investigate these great truths that had been revealed to them that they didn't fully understand. And not only do the New Testament preachers proclaim it as the, the Gospel of Christ as fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy with the additional revelation, but Peter also adds at the end of verse 12, These are things into which angels long to look. So not only does it draw the study and meditation and investigation of the Old Testament prophets, but the angels are also drawn to want to understand it. At the end of verse 12, it's interesting that when Peter writes things into which angels long to look, He uses a present tense. In other words, it wasn't just the angels in the Old Testament period wanting and longing to look into the mysteries of the grace of salvation. But it was happening in His day and it's happening in our day as well. Because we know in Ephesians 3 that God is still teaching the angels through His of His manifold 
wisdom in dealing with the church, dealing with you, dealing with me, still teaching the angels. These are things, this grace, this salvation that angels long to look into. They're still longing to look into it. This particular word for longing to look, to look, has the idea of bending down closely to examine something of great interest. It's the very same word that Luke uses in Luke chapter 24, verse 12 of, of Peter, who had heard that Christ had risen from the, from the dead. And he runs to the tomb, and it says, Peter stooping down and looking into the empty tomb of Christ after the women told him that he was not there. And Peter saw only the linen wrappings and then went away marveling. Luke twenty four twelve. So this running and stooping and looking into the empty tomb is the same word to describe these angels. Almost as if they're bending down with eyes wide open, looking, wanting to understand this saving grace all the more. Longing to look into it. Now it's interesting, it doesn't say in the Bible that angels are longing to look into the physical realms of creation. It doesn't say that they long to look into the mysteries of astronomy or the discoveries of science. I mean, they know probably far more than all the scientists of the modern era anyway. But that's not what really draws their greatest attention. It says in Job that the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy when God created the heavens and the earth. So they know that, they see that, they worship God for it, but that's again not what's drawing their gaze. They long to look into the saving grace of God for sinners. The angels teach us again that this is a noble work to study, to understand the grace of God's salvation. Thomas Manton, one of the Puritans said, eagles will not stoop to catch flies. They go for more bigger, greater prey than a mere fly or a worm on the ground. They have great delight in learning about the manifold wisdom of God in the work of redemption. Why? Why are angels so interested, longing to look at the grace of God's salvation for us? Well, they know much about God's plan of salvation. They are messengers who are often sent to relay prophetic information to the prophets in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. They ministered to Moses and gave him much of the law. Gabriel was the one who revealed to Daniel these 70 week prophecies of the coming of the Messiah. They knew, they knew about Christ, obviously. And even when the Old Testament prophecies began their fulfillment in the incarnation of Jesus Christ, they were messengers of this information. His angels informed both Joseph and Mary of his of her miraculous conception. They went and they told the shepherds in the field about the birth of Christ that night, of good news of a great joy, of the Savior has been born for you. I mean, they knew what Jesus Christ was about. 
They were there ministering to Jesus after His temptation from the devil in the wilderness for 40 days. They were there in the Garden of Gethsemane ministering strength to the human nature of our Lord. The angels were there to roll away the stone when our Lord had been raised from the dead. They also announced His resurrection from inside the empty tomb. Remember, they were the ones that said He's not here, He is risen. And when Jesus Christ ascended to the Father in Acts 1, it was the angels that told the disciples of Christ returning in the same manner in which they saw Him leave. They know much about the plan of salvation. And their minds are untainted by sin so that what they know, they know with a holy mind and from a holy heart. But you see, all that they know for the angels is merely head knowledge as we would say it today. Because they have no practical experience of this grace at all. They know nothing of salvation at all, nor can they. So all they know about Christ is head knowledge in the sense of His redeeming grace. Because they've never experienced it. There is no redemption for angels. Christ came to make propitiation for the sins of the people, not for angels at all. In Hebrews chapter 2, verse 16, it says, For assuredly, He does not give help to angels, but He gives help to the descendant of Abraham. So for the angels who fell, who are now demons, there is no hope. There's no offer of salvation for them. There's no reconciliation for those angels. There's no good news of forgiveness. That when they sinned against God, they were doomed forever without any second chance of salvation. As Peter will later write in his second letter, chapter 2, verse 4, that God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to pits of darkness reserved for judgment. That God in His justice and wisdom chose not to provide any way of salvation for angels if they sinned against God. The holy angels understand God's justice. And they know that grace is freely given. And the fact that God in His grace did not provide a remedy for the sin of angels, they understand that. That they have no right to it. That they cannot accuse God of being unjust and not providing a way of salvation for them. So that the holy angels worship God for His justice. Because that's all their kind know. There is no grace or redemption for angels. Their minds are so devoted to God and full of praise for God that they absolutely do not question God's decision to only deal with angels according to His justice. They do not complain that He did not provide grace for them because they know that grace is freely given. That no one can demand it of a holy God. But they are overwhelmed then by God's sovereign mercy to humans, to creatures that are made a little lower than they for a while, who have committed sins just as vile, just as wicked, just as despicable as their sin. 
And yet God chose to provide a way of salvation for them. And the, and the angels, the holy angels, rejoice in God's grace to us, though not given to them. On top of that, I think these angelic holy minds were blown away at the cost that the Holy Father was willing to make to save such rebellious sinners among men. A gift He would not extend to angels, but they would be amazed what the Father was willing to sacrifice to save creatures who are less than they. They have worshipped the Trinity from the moment they were created. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The holy angels, the chosen elect angels of God worship the Father. They worship the Son who created them and the Spirit of God. They worship the entire Godhead every moment of their being. How utterly amazed they must have been to learn that the Father planned to send His Holy Son to come down to earth to take a full and complete human nature yet without sin. That Jesus Christ came down, the Son of God came down and lived among sinners who hated Him and endured animosity by their hands, who nailed Him to a Roman cross, that the Father would take the sins of these lesser creatures and place them upon the Holy Son that they have worshipped from day one and then afflict the Son and punish the Son and crush the Son for the sins of these other creatures and provide a way of salvation and forgiveness for them that they were never offered. The Son of God became the suffering substitute for sinners and their holy minds must be almost ready to explode at the sheer grace of God to save sinners and not save any of their kind that fell. Could you imagine the reaction of the holy angels in heaven when Jesus, the Lord of glory, their Creator, was crucified and nailed to the cross? He whom the angels had adored and worshipped was crucified as a criminal by other sinners? Might they have covered their holy eyes from gazing upon such a, a shameful sight? Might they have cried out and wailed at such injustice in the world? I think not. I think their holy hearts erupted in praise. Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. No sense of loss that it wasn't extended to them, but praise to God that He would provide such a price, such a sacrifice to save sinners among mankind. And though they cannot rejoice in the Lamb that was slain for their sins, they could certainly rejoice in the grace of God in sending the Lamb to be slain for our sins. And this is why salvation is by grace. 
And all you need to be saved is Jesus Christ because He did it all. Throw away any lingering foolishness that you can be saved by being good because your thoughts are poisonous. Throw away any notion that God will accept you as you are. For we by nature are children of wrath and we deserve the wrath of God. But rather come as a sinner to Christ and and believe upon Him that He died for your sins and bore the full wrath of God for them. And come and worship Him and trust in Him alone who can save you. Because He alone paid the full penalty for the price of our sins. Turn from your self-idolatry and believe in Christ and call upon Him to save you. And He will. That's the grace of God. That's the gift of God. Because there's nothing we can do to earn it. We can only receive it. It's interesting, these angels who longed to look at this saving grace of God was imprinted upon the minds of the Israelites in the tabernacle and in the temple. Because inside the Holy of Holies, where only the high priest could go once a year, you have the Ark of the Covenant. On top of the Ark of the Covenant was the mercy seat. And molded in one piece with the mercy seat are two cherubim on top. You remember. We're told in Exodus chapter 25, verse 20, that the cherubim shall have their wings spread upward covering the mercy seat with their wings and facing one another. And the faces of the cherubim are to be turned toward the mercy seat. So you have two angels facing one another with their wings outspread over over the mercy seat. And they're facing one another, but their eyes are directed to the mercy seat. Because the mercy seat is where the blood is shed for the propitiation of their sins. The mercy seat, the blood, is what would enable them to find forgiveness from God. And their gaze is upon the blood that was not shed for them, but it was shed for us. And their eyes are just penetrating with a look and a desire to understand the glory of that grace because they cannot experience it. And that, I believe, is what the angels of God are still doing. Gazing in wonder and worship for the Lamb of God that was slain to provide salvation for sinners like you and for like me. And the angels who are never offered that Gospel, that good news, that offer of forgiveness, Nevertheless, from their holy hearts, worship and praise God for offering it to us. Our great salvation, which we experience today, which will be consummated in the future, was revealed in the past. It drew the longing eyes of not only the prophets of old, but the Gospel preachers who proclaimed it and the angels who long to worship God for the grace, though they will never experience it. 
Today it is still our great benefit to share the interest of the angels in looking more deeply into the mysteries of Christ and the gospel. It is well worth your time. If you commit it to understanding the saving grace of God more, you will be blessed. And oh, that God would open our hearts and our minds to be drawn to this, that we might know the breadth and length and height and depth of the love of God for our souls. The angels, the holy angels, they never sinned. Some of their kind did. No salvation. But the holy angels long to understand the nature of this grace and mercy given to you and me. If they are drawn to look more deeply into these things, though they have never tasted it, should not we be drawn? We who have tasted of the kindness of God, we who have known the forgiveness and love of Christ, should we not be drawn to know more of this saving grace of our great God? The Proverbs tell us it is the glory of God to conceal a matter, but the glory of kings to search it out. And would that God stir our hearts that we might know it more deeply. The Queen of Sheba was willing to travel hundreds of miles to see the wisdom of Solomon. And yet one who is greater than Solomon is here. And we can know him more if we study the Word and pray for grace to illuminate our minds to see the glory of Christ and the saving grace that He won for us through His blood on the cross. Well, it's our privilege now to celebrate the Lord's Supper to help us do that very thing. What can you do as the elements are being passed down the rows? Well, you can meditate upon Christ. You can think about your sin and think about His mercy and His love and His forgiveness. You may want to open your Bibles to Isaiah 53 and read through that and just worship God for the blood of the Lamb that was slain. Maybe you want to open your Bible to Romans 3 and read about that or Romans chapter 5 of just the grace of God and our justification and propitiation. Or maybe Ephesians chapter 2 of our spiritual deadness and the grace and love of God that has saved us and raised us up with Him. Or you may want to open your hymnal and silently sing to yourself some great hymn of praise to God for salvation. This is a time to focus, to long, to look, to understand, to respond in praise and thanksgiving for the blood of the Lamb of God that was slain for us. This is our time to draw near to Him. For Him to draw near to us so we can have fellowship with our Savior. This is that time. And may God enable us to do that. And for those of us who by Your grace we have put our faith and trust in Christ alone to forgive us, Lord, draw us ever closer. Stir our hearts to long to look more deeply into this saving grace from Jesus Christ. And we'll give You the praise in His name. Amen.